0: The Naked Scientist Time for The Naked Scientist with Dr. Chris Smith. We're taking your calls on 11 W and the WhatsApp line 72 1702 and we will be taking all of your science related questions. Dr. Chris Smith, happy Monday. We were just speaking earlier about a sleep clinic that's been launched in South Africa and some of the terrible um, challenges that people uh, face with sleep. What is the latest that you could share with us from your perspective and your research on sleep that we really should know about because I think we're we're not doing a great job and technology is not helping, lifestyle is not helping either.
1: Labour. I wanted to say actually I'm in a good mood and the reason I'm in a good mood is because it's Nobel Prize week and the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine very much overlaps with my field as a virologist oh, nice. yes. and uh, we've seen today the announcement of mRNA vaccines and the technology that went into mRNA vaccines winning the Nobel Prize for Kathleen Carrico and Drew Weissman who were working when they did all of that work at uh, the University of Pennsylvania so big congratulations to them. Amazing work that that goes back actually decades and finally culminated in that huge rush towards getting a vaccine for COVID and, and all that learning and work could be brought to bear. So I think that's a, a well-earned Nobel Prize for them this week.
0: Definitely. And, and of course, it's always exciting to see some of the, the work people are doing quietly, but they get to be recognised for. Let us uh, open up the lines. We are kicking off with Christine in Centurion. Hi, Christine. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Dr. Chris. Chris,
2: Hi, who, would have a, who would have the greater or higher immunity? A person who's had COVID twice and recovered or the person who had the two COVID vaccines against the virus? Whose body would be have the greater immunity?
1: Uh, Christine, you can't possibly say because different things do different things to different people. We're all different. What we know also is that time matters, and how long after having the infection or having the vaccine, you then test the levels really matters as well, because with most vaccines, some exceptions, but with most vaccines, what you see is about a three-week lag after having the vaccine before you hit peak antibody, and then after you reach peak antibody, it's all downhill from there, literally as well as metaphorically, because what happens is that because the immune system doesn't have the stimulation that made it make the antibodies in the first place, either because you caught the thing or you got vaccinated, the immune system doesn't waste resources defending you against something it doesn't perceive to be a threat. And therefore you begin to lose your antibody levels. And that will come down, and in some people it comes down faster, in other people it comes down more slowly. But in older people it tends to decay fairly rapidly. So you tend to be protected if you've been vaccinated against the flu or COVID, for example, for several months after you've had the vaccine. And then you become vulnerable to infection again, but not necessarily severe infection. And this was the other learning point that came out of the pandemic, which is that we we have to relearn what we mean by the word immunity. We used to regard the word as, of immunity as I am immune from getting something, But that's not strictly true because different levels of antibody give you different levels of protection and a very high level like you get just after a vaccine or actually after you've recovered from the infection gives you protection against infection full stop. But as the levels of antibody drop down, you may get to a point where there's not enough antibody to stop you becoming infected, but there's plenty there to stop you getting severe disease. So people can still succumb to the infection, but they don't become severely unwell. And that's going to be true with both vaccination, but also natural infection. So really, it will depend on who you look at, when in their disease course you look at them, and how severely they got infected with COVID for real versus the vaccine to make a fair comparison. So, really, it's it's not an easy comparison to give a straightforward answer to.
0: Thank you so much, Christine, for that question. Uh, Peter from Soweto, go ahead. Uh,
2: uh, how are you, Doctor
1: Chris? I'm good.
2: Yes, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not aware, if, uh, uh, I don't know if you are aware of the irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, my symptoms present as gas, constipation, chronic diarrhea, and uh, cramp on the stomach. And in the background, uh, I suffer from ulceration and uh, high blood, sugar, and uh, also my prostate uh, had uh, internal and external radiation. So uh, I keep on a bit of Imodium now and again, but uh, uh, then when I've used Imodium, it goes for three, four days without going to the toilet. And then, then when it comes back, then it's diarrhea again. So I wonder what is it that I should do in terms of food, in terms of uh, to try and control the situation.
0: So, so Peter, just to, you know, it's difficult for doctors to diagnose over the phone. And I hope you'll feel um, okay with Dr. Chris sharing, you know, maybe general information pertaining to some of the details you shared, because there'll be a lot of background medical information that you won't be able to provide for us. But doctor, maybe you can assist in a case like this.
1: Yeah. I'm sorry to hear about these symptoms. That must be very troubling. The key thing with any kind of gastrointestinal problem, for anybody who's listening to this, it's not so much what's normal for you, it's if something changes. So I'm much less concerned if someone says, this is the normal pattern for me, unpleasant though it is, than if someone says, I'm normally absolutely fine and I've started to have this change to my bowel habit. If you've been right for years and then suddenly something changes, especially if you start to get unexplained diarrhoea, for example, you absolutely need to get this investigated. So the key thing here, the message here is if something changes in your bowel habit, and it's called a bowel habit for a reason, something's up and you need to get that looked into. Now, it might be something trivial, because we are all creatures of habit, and if we change our habits, then we upset the apple cart inside ourselves. And there are trillions of microbes that inhabit our intestines, and they see our dinner before we do. And if we eat different things, or at different times, or in different amounts, then we can upset our microbiome, which in turn upsets our own physiology. If you get treated for another disease, and you might take drugs that in turn affect your microbiome like antibiotics for example or other drugs that disturb your biochemistry. This can in turn have a a knock-on effect on the microbiome and have a knock-on effect on your bowel habit. So it's very important to take all these sorts of factors into, into account, exactly as Lebo is saying. We can't do on-air diagnosis because you do have to ask a lot of questions and look at what is normal for that person and whether one can easily explain why they are experiencing what they're experiencing. But if it is just, and I don't mean that in a belittling way, just IBS, it's something that's normal for you, then most people know what their triggers are. And if psychological distress is what makes it worse, look at why it's suddenly flared up. Look at what makes it worse, look at what makes it better. Try to spot a pattern. Try to do the things that obviously... This sounds like common sense, but it's when you're stuck with this, it can be really troubling. But try to do the things that you know tend to make it more comfortable and try to minimize the things that make it worse. If you change medication, you mentioned ulcers and things, well, those sorts of drugs do affect stomach acidity, which in turn affects the biochemistry and the environment further down the intestine. It may be if those drugs are changed or tweaked, it might give you some comfort. So the fact this is causing you distress, you need to go and see somebody get this reviewed and see if they can actually look at all of the working, moving parts in this and see if... And the WhatsApp line 072-702-1702 702
0: The Naked Scientist 11 minutes to 3 o'clock, we're still with Dr. Chris Smith, The Naked Scientist We take all of your science related questions on 011830702 double one double eight three oh seven oh two and the WhatsApp line 72 Dr. Chris, a question comes through from Robert in Houghton Estate who says, hey Dr. Chris what is the difference between the old vaccine and the new re-engineered
1: one. Well, if we go back a few hundred years to the time of Jenner, Edward Jenner, who was the really the forefather, founding father of the science of vaccination with his trial involving a young boy, Phipps, whom he uh, administered cowpox. And then later on, exposed to smallpox, and proved he was infect- he was he was infection free, and therefore protected. And he got the insight by noticing that milkmaids, dairymaids, who very frequently encountered cowpox from cows, almost never seemed to get smallpox. And he put two and two together, and that was the first insight. Now the way that was working is that we we are exposing the immune system to something, which looks very similar to the thing we're trying to protect against and you make an immune response both white blood cells called T cells but also white blood cells called B cells that make antibodies and you produce both of those by exposure to the vaccine and this means if you run into the threat for real you're strongly protected. Now when we make a vaccine and let's take Covid vaccines and I don't know if that's what he's asking about but if we take Covid vaccines as an example The first generation of vaccines recognised a certain circulating form of the virus that was prevalent at the time, and most of those vaccines worked in the same way. They were taking parts of the virus, the genetic code of the virus, that codes for the outer coat, the spikes, which it uses to hijack its way into our cells, and you show the body what those look like, either because you take the genetic message for them and put it into an mRNA vaccine, or... You take the genetic message for them and put it into another virus in the case of astrazeneca's vaccine that was a a kind of adenovirus a completely different virus but the outcome is the same you deliver to a cell a target cell or group of cells the genetic message for what this bit of the outer coat of the virus looks like and you make the immune system cells make and therefore respond to that particular structure making you've guessed it antibodies and cells capable of fighting off infected cells and the virus for real now scientists are continuously monitoring what the circulating threats look like and some viruses very rarely change but other viruses change very very fast influenza is one example hiv is another example that's why that one's such a headache to get rid of but covid also changes and evolves and as it changes and evolves it displays a slightly different makeup of these structures on its surface the spike proteins which means if you've got an immune response that's looking out for spikes that look a certain way and the virus now looks a different way it can sneak past your defenses because you're looking out for a certain individual and the person actually has had a facelift and now looks unrecognizable so you have to update your immune system in order to recognize what the person the threat the virus now looks like and so when they update the vaccine that's what they do and the mrna vaccines you can do it very very fast because you're just changing the genetic code and that's very easy to do and you put that into the same packages that then goes into the body and you've updated your vaccine and you can do it in literally hours
0: Thank you so much uh, for that question that came through from Robert. We've got another question that says, please ask Dr. Chris to discuss in simple words the impact of eating grapefruit or drinking grapefruit juice on, on taking medication. It apparently amplifies the effect of the medicine by 20. Dangerous fruit seems innocent yet can have dire consequences on the medication's effect on you. Ooh, I've never heard of that before. Doctor?
1: Yes, it's well established. And in fact, when I was at medical school, there was a very common, very popular antihistamine called Triludan. And this was withdrawn because this effect was found to be very stark with that particular drug. And it was causing toxic effects. And the reason it happens is that when you take a drug, the drug goes through your metabolism before it goes into your bloodstream. because the blood from the intestine drains through the wall of the intestine, through the liver, and then out into your systemic circulation. And if you have certain things that you take, certain drugs you take, that can block up, affect, or augment the action, in some cases, of your metabolism, you change the so-called bioavailability of the drug. So let's take an example. If you take certain drugs which are broken down by a certain enzyme in your body and you then take another drug, which happens to make that enzyme much more active, then the first drug is going to get broken down a lot more than it would normally do, so you won't have enough dose on board. Conversely, if you take a drug which inhibits that first enzyme, then you take a a dose of the drug, which you would normally take a big dose because you expect to lose half of it as it goes through your liver and into your circulation. Uh, You then end up with none of it being broken down, so you're into an overdose. And people found that uh, grapefruit is capable of blocking up one particular class of of your um, enzymes that can break down various agents in this way. And therefore it was changing the amount of the availability of the drug, and therefore it was poisoning people. And so you have to be a bit careful about the interactions between some of the constituents of some fruits and vegetables and also other medications and their effect on medications. And these are called drug-drug interactions, and we're becoming very aware of the, the problem that this poses and we're very of it these days and we take steps to make sure we avoid it.
0: Thank you so much for that question. I was completely not aware about that. Let's go to Pina in Springs. Hi. Hello, how are you? Good, thanks. And you? I'm
2: fine. I just want to find out from the doctor that um, I had a, a pain on my leg. Uh, I was running, I'm almost joking. So after joking, and then when I arrived at home, uh, I had a feeling of some, some sort of nerve and I couldn't move or do anything, but I quickly went to bed and then relaxed. But after that, I went to the doctor and then the doctor told me that it is a nerve, but now. Uh, I did I did uh, take the treatment, but the problem is the lower leg is still having that uh, pain of a cramp, sort of cramp. And then my foot is numb. So I'm not sure what is the cause. And then I'm limping now. I cannot now use my leg as usual, as normal. I'm limping so I'm not sure what is the cause. And then somebody advised me that I must go to the physiotherapy. They are dealing with the nerve. Mm. So just so yeah,
1: you you, ab- you absolutely must go and get this investigated because what has happened, if you have now numbness and weakness in your leg, the nerve supply, which is going from the skin into your spinal cord and from your spinal cord to your muscles, has been interrupted. The most common reason this happens is because between each of the bones in your back, the vertebral bones, is a soft, squidgy, intervertebral disc, the centre of which uh, is a jelly-like substance, the outer surface of which is a fibrous structure which holds the jelly in, but as we get older it can weaken and you can get a bulge in that disc which can impinge or squeeze the nerves that are coming out of and into the spinal cord at different levels and especially if you're jogging you're putting a lot of vertical pressure up and down through your spine and you may well have herniated as it's known as one of those discs and squeezed a nerve and the fact that your leg went funny abruptly argues that probably a disc has prolapsed in that way and it's squeezing on a nerve. It's very important that you get advice on this because uh, if, if this is uh, more serious then it, it needs something doing about it and because you've got that neurology with the weakness and the loss of sensation you need to get this looked into to make sure that it's uh, properly managed okay so do go and see somebody about that and see if they, if they can investigate and see if anything needs to be done to relieve the pressure on that nerve
0: thank you pina all the best with that one here is a voice note good afternoon and dr chris i'd like to know what is it in a woman's blood or urine that gives a positive pregnancy result thanks dima
1: uh, well, this is a substance called beta-HCG, human chorionic gonadotrophin. And the way this works is that when your baby is first forming as a fertilised egg, the outer layer of the egg makes this signal called beta-HCG, which mimics the action of the stuff coming out of your ovary, which would normally tell the uterus to sustain its nice, involuted, highly rich, lush lining to receive a pregnancy. And as the fertilized embryo comes floating down the fallopian tube, it's releasing this stuff into the woman's bloodstream so that the lining of the uterus stays ready and prepared to receive that fertilized egg because otherwise what would happen is the menstrual cycle would kick in and the uterus would shed its lining, menstruation, and there would be no lining ready to receive the fertilized egg when it arrived at the right place in the in the uterus. So you make this chemical, if you're a developing embryo, which mimics the action of your corpus luteum in your ovary and